Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to our first Emerging Market Lens and Look Through podcast of the 2024 calendar year. I am your host, Damian Sassauer, and today we are joined by Jens Nistet and Patrick Estruelas of legendary emerging market-focused hedge fund EMSO Asset Management. Gentlemen, a real privilege to have you here. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Thank you, Damian. Great to be here. Thank you. Well, fabulous, gentlemen. We have had... Nothing short of a massive rally in emerging market fixed income since October. I'm um, just going to give you some numbers here. Sovereign credit up 9.5%. EM corporate credit up 7.1%. EM local up 8.5% over the period. Yens, back in November's FICA, and for our audience, I'm sure you listened to the EMSO Talks podcast, but you had referenced, Patrick, and the twin peaks of U.S. exceptionalism and China pessimism. Yet here we are in January, and I don't think any of us can say with any degree of confidence that we've reached the peak in either. So I just want to hear your thoughts here on the U.S., on China. What comes next? Sure. Um, so we you know, still think that um, we are you know, approaching you know, some level of visibility in terms of our twin peak theme. Um, the U.S. Uh, you know, has certainly been uh, surprising to the upside. I mean, in terms of its overall growth resilience, um, but we think that there are you know a number of headwinds materializing uh, you know, over the course of the next several months. I mean, which should you know make U.S. growth look less spectacular. Right? Um, you know, fiscal policy is uh, you know not likely to be uh, you know as as big of a contributor. I mean, as it was over the course of last year, in large part. I mean, thanks to the additional spending that was unlocked by the Chips Act. Um, uh, excess savings, I mean, also have been whittled down, you know, significantly, um, you know, by, you know, some estimates. I mean, they should be, you know, entirely wound down uh, by Q2 of uh, this year. Um, you know, credit is, is harder to come by. Um, you know, tightening in credit conditions obviously, uh, you know, typically occurs with a lag. Um, and as much as we haven't seen any layoffs, right, of any significant quantity, in the U.S. labor market, uh, you know, quits rates and hiring rates, you know, do seem to be normalizing, you know, rather quickly, right? Um, which, uh, you know, points to the possibility of cooling wage growth and as a result, you know, less overall support for the U.S. consumer. Um, so everybody is caught up, you know, uh, on the question of whether we're going to see a U.S. recession or not. Yeah. Whereas I think the real question is, you know, whether U.S. growth is, is going to be, you know, anywhere, you know, near as strong and, again, as spectacular as it was last year. And we think the definitive answer uh, is, is no. China, you know, as you mentioned, uh, you know, has been, uh, you know, a case of constantly and persistently disappointing expectations. Right? <laughs> um, I, I think we all went into 2023, I mean, thinking that we would have, you know, the, the sort of revenge consumption, right, I mean, that we had seen in many other countries that, uh, you know, have finally, you know, given in, in you know, to the idea of, um, uh, you know, changing their approach, I mean, towards containing COVID. Um, but the fact of the matter, I mean, is that, uh, you know, China is, uh, you know, still unfortunately, uh, you know, carrying, uh, you know, a number of, of very heavy legacies from the past, right? I mean, including, uh, you know, excess leveraging uh, and a property sector that, uh, you know, has taken its time, basically, I mean, towards, uh, you know, approaching a plateau, right? I mean, or a stable setting. 
Um, you know, we think that, um, you know, we are closer to that point. Um, you know, we're beginning to see, you know, the signs of, um, uh, you know, the end of the destocking cycle in China, yeah. uh, you know, which, uh, you know, typically, you know, should result, I think, in a restocking cycle. I mean, that should last a number of quarters. Uh, household consumption, I mean, has been reasonably resilient. Um, and the property sector, while still being a drag, right, uh, is less of a drag today, right? I mean, with, uh, you know, year-over-year changes, uh, you know, over the course of the last couple of months, you know, now approaching kind of like, you know, low single digits and showing some signs of stabilization. If on top of that, you know, we add, um, you know, what do we think, uh, you know, is, is still a set of, uh, you know, pro-growth stimulus policies, both on the fiscal and the monetary side, you know, the chances that, you know, China, you know, could, uh, you know, sequentially improve uh, and I think maintain you know a growth target of around five percent for this year. We think are reasonably solid. Interesting, Jens. Anything to add here? I mean, let me just point out here that dollar yuan is down about seventy basis points this year. It's down twelve percent since twenty twenty one, having declined in each of the past two years. We're about a month away now from the Lunar New Year. I think it's the year of the dragon, and <laughs> the Chinese economy is literally, in my opinion, on its back. If you look at the recent PMI data, I mean, talk to us, Jens, a little bit more about Chinese deflation, about the PBOC. I mean. Can stimulus even work there anymore? I mean, what should we expect? Well, I think that, first of all, the argument that we are past uh, the point of the excessive pessimism is relative to expectations, right? If there is a place that is going to surprise us, given that pessimism people have for 2024, it's going to be China. And I think that the outlook is going to be really driven by the export sector. And for that, they actually need a weaker currency, to yeah. your point. That's uh, that's where some of the stimulus is going to come from. And I think the market was sniffing that theme uh, at the end of last year, but clearly policymakers decided uh, not to do that necessary adjustment yet. And look, a weaker currency will also help with some of the deflationary tendencies that we're seeing. They're still importing a lot of commodities, right? So uh, we have uh, geopolitical events galore at the moment that certainly would suggest that uh, commodity prices are more likely to go up than down. So I don't really see that as a source of deflationary pressure going forward, including for China. So therefore, if I look at it net-net in terms of policy choices, yes, they are pushing on the string when it comes to monetary policy, but that doesn't mean that they're not going to do it. I think that we are going to see some lower interest rates going forward there. That's consistent also with the weaker currency. So regardless of which way you look, I think that the goal here is ultimately to stimulate the export sector. They're going into, I think, a difficult year from a geopolitical time as well. I mean, we have Taiwanese elections, et cetera. So we're going to keep a close eye on China here. And uh, uh, when it comes to growth, I think the basic point was simply that China is still such an important engine for your EM outlook. And that's where we see the scope for surprises. Doesn't mean it happens, but we are always from a kind of portfolio management perspective, seeing where, where do you see the biggest bang for your buck when it comes to uh, an actual change in trajectory. And I think China can deliver that. Well, Jens, I mean, if we look back, and our audience will remember, you were back here nearly two years ago now, and I remember you talking about China and the yuan as a funding currency, and lo and behold, that is exactly what it's become. So, Patrick, I ask you, you know, if you look at the winners and losers in EMFX since the pandemic first began, it's largely been a carry story, right? I mean, high yielders, outperforming the low yielders, you know, yield differentials and all that. Yet, you know, now we've seen, you know, yields kind of peaking, you know, across most of the globe. You know, is there still an opportunity for practitioners to monetize all that carry on offer across the whole of EM? I mean, where should we be looking for that? 
Yeah, and it's, a, it's an excellent question, um, and, uh, and one that I think is going to be a little bit more difficult to answer over 2024 versus 2023. Um, uh, first, of course, I mean, it boils down to a broad call on the dollar. Um, and, um, and for, you know, EM, uh, you know, FX, I mean, I think to continue to, uh, you know, deliver the sort of returns, I mean, that we saw over in 2023, uh, it, it's as much, uh, uh, you know, a question on, you know, whether you think U.S. growth, again, is going to be less spectacular <laughs> than last year, as much as, you know, what you think rest of the world growth is going to look like, right? Um, uh, again, we see, uh, you know, widening uh, differentials, I mean, between the U.S. and the rest of the world, I mean, which, uh, you know, should be advantageous, right, I mean, to EMFX and should result in a weaker dollar. Uh, but to your point earlier, Damien, right, I mean, we're no longer operating, I mean, with the, you know, sort of carry, you know, that we had over the course of 2023, right, I mean, in a context where, you know, a lot of EM central banks, uh, you know, have been, you um, uh, uh, you know, first out of the gate, right? Yeah. I mean, in lowering rates, um, you know, and uh, and accommodating, you know, what has uh, you know also been a surprisingly disinflationary picture, right? Uh, you know, today, uh, you know, core CPI for the GBIM index as a whole on a three-month annualized basis is around two point seven percent. Yeah, right. Um, so you know, we still have you know a lot more room for EM central banks. I mean, to uh, you know cut rates. I mean, much of this, of course, is already you know priced in. You know, in the front end of uh, you know many EM curves, um, you know, which uh, you know should result in you know we think depleting carry, right? Uh, you know, and as a result, uh, you know, a, a less you know favorable, right? I mean, set of uh, you know supporting pillars. I mean, for EMFX over the course of this year. Yeah, and as our audience knows, I mean, what you're talking about here are forward markets in places like Czech, Colombia, Israel, Mexico, Romania, places that haven't started cutting yet, but where the forward curves are obviously priced for that. You know, I wonder, you know, and shifting over to you, Jens, you know, we look at, you know, we, we're talking about king dollar over here and broad dollars up about 82 basis points on the year, yet it's down nearly three and a half percent since October. Based on rate differentials alone, I mean, most will have you say that the dollar looks relatively cheap, I think, to the euro and the yen. Um, yet, I'm looking at implied vol across the whole of FX, not just developed, but emerging markets as well. I'm looking at put call option skew. I mean, it's signaling complacency relative to dollar upside. I mean, just how much runway do you think dollar weakness has in this environment here today, number one? And number two, I guess the question is, you know, how should we be thinking about um uh, about the future for the dollar as 2024 goes on. I mean, should we be, you know, waiting for a better entry point or are we there now? Well, I think we need to divide uh, 2024 up into two halves when it comes to the dollar and where and whether it's exactly a half or not really depends when are we going to start pricing in the U.S. election. Uh, clearly, I would say the, the vast number of elections we have globally, the one that it's going to have I think the biggest impact in terms of your EM outlook or any other asset class outlook, it's going to be uh, the ones in the U.S. Yeah. And that could be a very dollar positive risk negative event. And clearly the market will need to prepare itself for that. But I think it's too soon to do it now. And in that environment, I think that what's going to be driving the dollar is the relative growth differentials and relative monetary monetary policy differentials. I mean, you mentioned since October, we priced in a lot of easing suddenly. And you can have a discussion of whether the market is slightly getting ahead of itself there. So 
that should be supportive of the dollar. If the Fed's view of their uh, cutting path is correct, then uh, uh, interest rate differentials would move in advantage of the dollar. So I think that the flip side of Patrick saying, look, carry has been eroding, it's still positive clearly for EM currencies, means that it's a lot cheaper actually to hedge. Yeah. And if the, if, if the better opportunity is really still in local rates curves where you have a significant real yield cushion, so you have to go further out the curve where the real yield is two or three or four times the real yield you can get in the U.S., well, hedge it, yeah. right? That's the opportunity. You don't necessarily need to make a currency call right here, right now, and still benefit from what I think has been kind of uh, one of the best sharp ratio performers of last year, which was the EM rates call. And yeah. I think that could continue. So do I think this is an opportunity right here, right now? No, I, I think there are too many other factors at play to make a strong dollar call. Yeah, and you even, I mean, you're right, and you, you say EM rates, but on a sharp ratio based on a risk-adjusted basis, but EM rates FX hedged, right? And mm-hmm. I mean, usually that is a very high correlation to U.S. Treasury yields, right, and U.S. Treasury performance. And my goodness, if you look at some of these calls for, for the full year 2024, at least in U.S. Treasuries, I mean, you could, you could by default almost think that EM FX hedge is going to perform well, but you mentioned elections. And I know the U.S. elections are front and center for everyone, but ballots are going to be cast in more than 30 countries next year. I think a record two out of every three adults in the democratic world will cast their vote for a new leader in 2024. And, you know, my question for you is some of these countries, specifically India, Indonesia, Mexico, uh, even South Africa, but the first three, we've seen quite a bit of interest from offshore in the last few weeks into those local debt markets. And I wonder if you can comment a little bit briefly, what will it take for foreigners in an election year like this, to increase their participation in some of these countries, and you know, I'd love you, you know, to get a little to drill down a little bit because all of them are unique in their own ways, right? I mean, India IGBs are going to be added to the index. Indonesia, I mean, we know what's going on there. Um, Mexico, um, the mayor of Mexico City, it could be the first female president of Mexico. Talk to us a little bit about what's going on, Patrick Yens. I mean, I defer. Maybe to kick off. Look, last year was another year of outflows. Right, so foreign involvement in local markets are still incredibly low. And if you look at percentage of local government ownership by foreigners, I think we are at multi-year lows. So it's not really a risk from a positioning perspective. The fact that people have been nibbling in the last quarter or so, I think is a reflection of, uh, in the case of Mexico, we're talking about probably the election outcome being a bit of a foregone conclusion. I don't think it really changes whatever you want to do there. Uh, Indonesia could be more interesting, but South Africa is probably closer to Mexico than it's Indonesia. So I think that in a world where you think that overall the duration outlook, thanks to major G7 central banks cutting, I think is a very different world than in 2023 when we were talking about rate hikes, right? So the duration tailwind that you're getting, I think, dominates some of these local political stories. That's not to say that it doesn't affect borrowing forecasts, these uh, countries are going to run wider fiscal deficits going into the elections. But I think the market is well aware of that. So I don't see necessarily that as a surprise. But Patrick, you disagree? No, I I, I certainly don't. And um, uh, if anything, the thing that we find actually rather interesting about this, uh, you know, huge electoral cycle, uh, you know, that we're seeing that is unlikely to be repeated, I mean, for at least another 40 years, (laughs) uh, is that... um, um, uh, for the most part, uh, you know, most of these, uh, you know, larger EM countries, I mean, that are going through an election cycle are likely to endorse some form of policy continuity. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so take, for instance, I mean, some of the, uh, you know, elections, I mean, that you mentioned, Damien, earlier. Um, you know, in Indonesia, 
the expectation is that uh, you know Prabowo is you know likely you know to be elected president um you know which you know would you know effectively constitute uh, you know some form of endorsement of continuity yep. right uh, of uh, you know existing policies which have been by and large very well received by the market in Mexico you know Claudia Sheinbaum is uh, the overwhelming favorite um and uh, and to the extent that the uh, you know ruling party Morena you know is likely to continue to have uh, you know a strong presence in Congress uh, is uh, you know unlikely to really represent a break you know with uh, you know policies over the course of the last uh, you know several years uh, even in South Africa you know where there is you know I think a, a relevant and pertinent question over whether the ANC may very well you know be below a 50% threshold right I mean for the first time you know in, in post-apartheid mm-hmm. politics um, uh, the the fact of the matter uh, you know is that even if they only miss by a slim margin you know there are you know any number of you know smaller parties that are in a center right of the spectrum that they are likely to rely on right I mean to you know continue to exert a majority uh, you know in parliament going forward so uh, you know the, the the headline right I mean is elections everywhere yep. right beware um, the the actual subtext I mean that I'm trying to introduce here is there may be less uh, you know to fear from these than meets the eye uh, because for the most part I think we're going to see an endorsement of policy continuity well elections aren't the only idiosyncratic story that we can play here in emerging markets I mean let's look out along the frontier right I mean there are plenty of emerging market economies operating there from El Salvador to Lebanon to Sri Lanka you name it and the amount of debt trading at distressed levels is rising. And so, you know, my question for you is, what are you seeing out there? You know, I mean, certainly in lieu of some of the, um, you know, the bilateral lending, you know, some of the common framework discussions that have been going on, you know, amongst the powers that be multilaterals and et cetera. You know, what are your thoughts? Could this be a defining year in 2024 for that asset class? Well, maybe let's take a step back and say, Patrick and I, we wrote this piece where we were revisiting in the asset class. And I think that what comes out very strongly in that piece is that it's the true frontiers that deliver you the kind of idiosyncratic opportunities, the kind of uncorrelated returns that traditionally you would associate it with EM fixed income. If you were doing this in the 90s, that's <laughs> kind of what you were thinking about, right? We were thinking Brazil was was an up-and-coming star. At the end of the day, we probably were disappointed. But the Brazils of this world are now, you know, more to be found in Ecuador. Yeah, Ecuador, or, or, or hopefully better than Ecuador, uh, <laughs> given given some of the political turmoil. But talk about Central America, the Caribbean, yep. some of Sub-Saharan Africa, which is actually making some progress. Nigeria is seeing some, some true uh, reform momentum here. That's really where you can make an allocation and think, hey, it's not dependent on what Powell says any given day or what the S&P 500 is doing. I think that overall, uh, if, if you gain your allocation to EM fixed income through the benchmarks, you don't necessarily get the kind of allocation to these frontier stories that you're bringing up. And I think it is promising. Now, uh, what's the good news of 2024 is probably that there will not be any large, important sovereign default, maybe none. A lot of that will depend on can they actually regain market access? Is the IMF and the MDBs more more globally ready to continue to fund a number of these countries that are going in the right direction, but there is one shock after the other. So when you think about the common framework and the progress that is being made there, I think it's been haltingly, but Patrick can can update us on that. But I think the general top-down theme is you gotta you gotta pick your spots, and and the, uh, they are all their own independent themes. Now, some of them will actually benefit from these geopolitical tensions, right? They will get more support rather than less. 
and uh, Egypt comes to mind in that context. Uh, but I think really when you think about emerging market fixed income and we talk to asset allocators of how do they think about it, we have a high bar to clear, right? Yeah. We need to be able to deliver risk-adjusted returns that are well in excess of what they can get, let's say, in U.S. high yield for similar rated asset classes. And for that, you really need to go down the credit spectrum and find these idiosyncratic themes. And that takes hard work, takes a lot of research. You know, gentlemen, I have to ask, were you surprised? I mean, I, I was surprised, I have to say, the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas, I mean, the Fed has been more macro-relevant than China, than Israel, than anything that's been going on. I mean, you think about it, I mean, equities are up, oil prices are down, spreads have tightened, and the dollar is weaker since October the 7th, right? So, you know, with all that being said, I mean, how can we think about, I guess, identifying, isolating, and profiting from geopolitical risk premia in emerging markets when, quite frankly, it just doesn't seem to be having the same impact it has in years past? Patrick, any thoughts? I think that's an excellent question, Damien. I mean, <clears throat> um, and and one that I know, uh, you know, many commodity traders. I mean, particularly those that were long oil, right? I mean, all through the course of last year on the super cycle thesis, right? I mean, I've been extremely frustrated by. It. It's like, you know, I mean, how you know many sources of geopolitical risk premium do we need, right? I mean, in order for oil to actually, you know, print an up year, yeah. right? Um, but um, uh, you know, I think. Part of the reason why, uh, you know, a lot of asset classes, uh, you know, not exempting EM, uh, you know, have been relatively resilient, I mean, to what has been an enormously complicated geopolitical risk uh, backdrop uh, is uh, because, uh, you know, as you pointed out, I think, uh, you know, U.S. Treasury rates, right, I mean, and Fed policy, I mean, continue to reign supreme and continue to be, you know, a very important, um, uh, you know, reference, uh, you know, benchmark for the asset class. But second of all, uh, you know, because, um, uh, you know, the flip side of some of these, uh, you know, geopolitical risk, uh, you know, sources, you know, has been greater support from the official sector community. Yeah. Uh, take Egypt, for instance, which is a, a perfect example, right, I mean, of the day and now, right? Um, Egypt, I mean, has over the course of the last, uh, you know, couple of months, I mean, dealt with, you know, any number of headwinds, including, you know, tourism receipts as a result of the Israeli Gaza conflict, um, you know, a brief interruption of, uh, you know, Israel gas imports, I mean, which are central, you know, to their, um, you know, re-export facilities, um, you know, as well as, of course, you know, most recently, yeah. right, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, interruption of, uh, you know, flows, I mean, through the Suez Canal, right, I mean, which you know, roughly, you know, contribute just shy of $1 billion a month, right, I mean, <laughs> In, in FX earnings, uh, you know, to uh, Egypt. Um, the flip side of that, of course, you know, has been that, um, you know, the Western community, and in particular the IMF, right, have been more than happy, right, I mean, to, uh, you know, consider the possibility of upsizing, right, I mean, the current IMF program uh, and provide additional support, I mean, to Egypt and perhaps not take as, uh, you know, close a look at, uh, you know, Egypt's need Right. I mean, to, uh, you know, float uh, and adjust the FX currency. Right. I mean, as a means, you know, to guarantee a longer sustainable future. If you couple that, you know, with, uh, you know, what has been, you know, evidence of stronger donor support, I mean, from the Gulf community, both through, you know, bilateral lending, as well as, of course, you know, participation in Egypt's privatization program. You know, this has helped, you know, not only plug, right, I mean, an offset, you know, some of these potential headwinds, but actually arguably, right, you know, extend, uh, you know, Egypt's runway above and beyond, I think, what, you know, most people consider to be the case, you know, all through last year. Well, gentlemen, we're getting a little bit late here, but I have to ask you this, my last question before we leave. I mean, look, 
emerging market growth, 2023, call around about 4%. I think if you look at most expectations, they're calling for something similar next year, maybe a bit of a, a dip due to China, Turkey, and some others. But you know, my question for you is, in years past, we've talked about the EMDM growth differential and how that's really always favored you know, emerging markets. And my question is, is, is that something that investors should be looking for, not just over the next year or two, but over the next decade? I mean, can we really believe that emerging markets are poised to grow at a quicker pace than their developed market counterparts? Well, I personally think that that goes back to what do you mean about emerging markets, right? Mm. And uh, there are a group of... Uh, Ex-China. No, yeah, kidding. well, I mean, <laughs> no, it kidding. is an important distinction, yeah, no, right? Or South Korea or yeah. any, right, exactly. And and in the piece that, that Patrick and I wrote, we, we, we make the distinction really between those emerging market countries that actually did deliver on this convergence theme, right? Yeah. As you mentioned, it's in Central Europe, it's in Asia. I mean, growth is slowing, right? right? There is no demographic dividend anymore, and it's uh, hard to make the case that there is tremendous catch-up, right? That argument for investing, be it in EM equities or EM fixed income, has clearly fallen away, yet it's a major component of the benchmarks, especially local benchmarks, right? So if you're allocating to an EM growth story, you're not going to find it to the majority of your actual allocation. That's a problem. Where do we see growth? Well, it's going to be in the frontier cases you brought up, Damien. That's really where the opportunity set is. And we could be surprised, right? There's a number of countries that maybe were, we call them in the opportunistic camp, right, which haven't delivered, but maybe there is regime change. Maybe we get surprises. What happens to Venezuela, for example? Maybe that could be a surprise Right, going imagine forward. them entering the market again, go yeah. figure. And, and, and clearly it's going to come back into the benchmark if they uh, roll over the sanction relief. So I think it's very, very hard to make a comment on EMDM growth differentials without defining what EM are you actually looking at. Overall, though, it's uh, hard for me to be uh, bearish that growth differential ex-China. I think DM is certainly slowing more than EM ex-China is. And if you look at capital flows and you add together equity and fixed income, there is a correlation there. And it's through FDI. And I think we didn't talk about nearshoring and those possibilities, but that I think is a real beneficiary for many of these EM stories that are in the rising camp as we define them. And capital flows will go where growth is. And Look, we, we'll, we'll see what the outcome of the U.S. elections are, but it's hard to argue that Mexico, for example, is as vulnerable this time around yeah. in 2016. And fund flows file returns. I mean, Patrick, yep. any last-minute thoughts for you? I mean, as... Uh, Jens has said it all. Jens <laughs> has said it all. He steals my thunder every day of we'll my work. We'll have to serve some so Swedish snacks and some coffee next time, yeah? <laughs> mm. Gentlemen, I cannot thank you enough for joining me here in our 731 Lexington Avenue studios. Jens Nishtet, co-CIO, EMSO Asset Management, Patrick Estruelas, Head of Global Research, EMSO. Thank you both for joining us. And thank you to our always caring, ever-enduring, committed emerging market enthusiasts. Thank you for your time and continued interest. Keep well, stay safe, and keep moving forward. Bye now.